Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Stephen Hussey. He's a chiropractor and a functional medicine practitioner and the author of two awesome books on health. One is called The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is Key to Vibrant Health, and the other is called The Heart, Our Most Medically Misunderstood Organ. And we're going to talk to him about both of those things today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. So uh, I read your book. It's a great foray into this ancestral dive we all kind of need to remember and look back on. It's inspiring almost to continue on the path after reading it. But before we get into some of the tenets and things that you find most important to share with people in your books, let's talk about why you even got interested in health in the first place. Yeah. Um, So... very young age, I had a lot of like health issues, uh, inflammatory in nature. So my my parents tell me that at age two, um, that's when they first started me like noticing me like wheeze and cough and things like that. And you know, I and then went to they took me to the doctor and they gave me the diagnosis of asthma. Um, and then from there, you know, I had a lot of other inflammatory things like irritable bowel syndrome. Um, I used to break out in in chronic hives like all over my body. Um, I would, I had terrible allergies and then eventually ended up with autoimmune disease, type one diabetes. And, um, so, you know, we were kind of thrust into this Western medical world, relying on them for, for health. And, you know, I did that for a long time. And then in college, uh, I started, you know, really finding out that the way I lived my life had a huge impact on my ability to manage these things. And no one had ever told me that before. Uh, so I was kind of trial and error doing things myself, and I, I majored in health and wellness in college. And then, you know, since then, I've I've determined that, or I found out that what was being offered to me as far as management, and that's what it was, management of my conditions. Um, but there was no there was no reason why these things were happening to me, and so I kind of went on this quest for finding out why. And, um, you know, I, I went through uh, a medical education as a chiropractor and then got my master's in functional medicine and all those things uh, gave me more, I think, almost like a knowledge base to to keep figuring out why. But it still wasn't the answer why I thought I was going to go to school and and learn why these things happened. And there were still no real clear cut answers. And so um, eventually I stumbled upon evolution and really dug into that. And, and it gave me the answers to why and also gave me solutions to what I should do. And, you know, I'm happy to say that all those things I suffered with as a child, aside from the type one diabetes, which is kind of collateral damage from that, um, are gone. And so I, I live a pretty inflammatory free life now. And I, I, I kind of chalk that up to kind of my own health quest and really stumbling on like the biology, ecology and everything that, that evolution, evolution, um, kind of showed me. Yeah, you know, highlighting, like, talking about, like, chronic disease in your book, and you were saying that, you know, there's, like, really have four characteristics, right? They don't heal themselves like the common cold, number one. They get worse Mm -hmm. over time, right? In in modern healthcare, we have no effective way to treat them. They typically don't have a single cause, but multiple causes, and they tend to display a complex set of symptoms that can send, you know, a doctor down an unclear path. And this is why what you did and what... I try to preach and a lot of others is you have to get in there if something's wrong with you. 
And you talk about in your book how we just hand things over to someone, how you just thought, hey, right, you when you were younger going through this process, it's like, well, they'll know what to do. Mm-hmm. And you discovered that you had to be the one who kind of had to figure it out. Yeah, I kind of had to, to take charge uh, because the answers weren't coming elsewhere. Uh, and even when I started to figure these things out, I would go back to the endocrinologist I was seeing and say, you know, I'm really finding an effect on this. Do you, do you have any input? Like, how can I do this better? And they were like, oh, we don't know. And I didn't really got, let's just test your thyroid again or, you know, whatever. Or they'd say, let's just um, manage your insulin levels. So there was really cl- no clear, um, it clearly they didn't understand the things that I was learning. And so I kind of lost my confidence in them. Um, but it it kind of makes sense because even, even in a chiropractic education like I got, you know, it's more holistic, more looking at the body, the innate intelligence of the body and to heal itself. But it was still very focused on the diagnosis. It was still very focused on analyze these symptoms, diagnose the person with some, you know, ICD-10 certified uh, disease, and then treat them accordingly. Uh, and so it was kind of like, you know, one disease, one treatment, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so these these things are way more complex and oftentimes the the array of symptoms that people have is one underlying cause, but it's causing multiple different symptoms. And if you look at it as far as the diagnosis, you're just chasing symptoms. Um, so yeah, I, I really had to kind of figure all that stuff out out myself and and take charge. What led led you down the Paleolithic path? Was it a class or something? I mean, what led you to really go? Hold on a minute, I got to look at evolution. Um, I, I, it's probably reading, uh, certain authors. So Jared Diamond's had a big impact on mm-hmm. me. Uh, Darwin himself, uh, reading, uh, the origin of species really blew my mind. Um, and, uh, also Richard Dawkins. Um, when I, when I started really understanding evolution, because, you know, I didn't really, I, even though like my, I talk about in my book, like I almost failed ecology and evolution in college, like one of my first biology classes, um, because I'd never had to study before in high school. And so I was teaching myself how to like learn and study in this class, but I almost failed it. So it's ironic that, you know, 15 years later, I wrote a book about evolution. Um, but, but yeah, even at that time I was just kind of clueless. And then it was later when I came back to these guys and reading these and really understanding evolution and, and, uh, how life just kind of works that I started, you know, applying that to health, modern health, and realizing that there was this huge mismatch. Let's, uh, I would love it for you because I think we all need a nice little brief course in it other than of course, buying your book and delving way deeper. But can you highlight for us the four concepts of evolution? Yeah, of course. Talk about in your book and let's just go through them and um, go from there because that's uh, very interesting. Yeah. So these are like the four, you know, principles that I, I like because these are ones that that when I came across them kind of gave me like aha moments. And so the first one is just understanding what natural selection is or just how evolution works because I used to think that, you know, it was how could something an individual thing literally change its characteristics and that's because that's not how it works. It like uh, one individual thing cannot change its characteristics. It happens through generations. And so then I thought, well how does that happen? And so um an example I could give is let's say that um like if we look at giraffes and and how they evolved such long necks, um, let's say that the only food that became available was higher up in the tree, and you know the the giraffes with the the longer necks at that time, because there's variation between them, 
had access to those um, the food higher up in the trees, and let's say they didn't share with the the giraffes who had the shorter necks, and they kind of kept it all for themselves. Well, that would give the giraffes with longer necks an advantage because they can you know feed themselves and have then they have more um, potential to uh, breed and and have offspring that also have long necks because they're passing on their long neck genes, whereas the shorter neck giraffes uh, would would be more likely to die off. And so throughout the generations, we end up with a population of long neck giraffes, and which is that's what we see today. We see giraffes with long necks. Um, and so that's in, kind in of how In your example, I'm like, wow, giraffes are a bunch of assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, these guys, yeah, right. don't count on these guys in an emergency. Gee. Yeah, um, right. They're not going to share. <laughs> well, you know, also what I learned, and I, I'm going to be probably misexplaining this. Maybe you know this about giraffes, but when I was in Africa, uh, maybe someone gave me some false information in the, in the bush there. But we were talking about giraffes and they were saying, so when they're bending their long necks down to get water or something, you know, below on the ground, and then let's say an attack from like a lion herd comes on and they have to like quickly raise their necks and bolt, they have a special mechanism that prevents them from like getting lightheaded and passing out from Yeah, there. like when we stand up too quick. Right, like, right, right. But yeah, they have these long ass necks. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's fascinating. You know, all of these really interesting things when we look in nature are based on sort of realistic parameters of the environment. Anyway, go ahead. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that just kind of explains, you know, how natural selection works. And once I grasped that, I was like, oh, now I see how over generations uh, things can uh, can change their characteristics, like their physical or behavioral characteristics. And so then um, the next one is that oftentimes it's said that humans evolved from apes, but that's not exactly what happened. I'm really glad uh, I want you to explain this because you do it so well in your book, too, um, about where we broke off and how. And also, I love the timeline. You have a visual graph of it. But yes, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, like I'm, yeah. I love this one. Yeah. It's so important because people think that, you know, uh, you know, we, there's a just direct lineage from, say, a chimpanzee or something. But, you know, the, the modern day apes that we have, like gorillas and bonobos and chimpanzees and orangutans and humans, modern day humans, have a common ancestor. And that common ancestor is, is thought to have existed around uh, six million years ago. And that's when the split happened. And so that's the other thing is that how do we get these different characteristics? Well, let's say that, you know, part of the, we have a group of, I call them apes in the book, like human apes, because we don't know what they were exactly. But, um, we have this group of them, let's say the group gets separated and part of them end up in a totally different environment with totally different selection pressures than the other. And so we get different, uh, over time we get different evolutions. And so, um, one of those groups, you know, started becoming, you know, the, uh, you know, what we know as modern day apes today. And there was many branches off and dying of different species as that happened. And eventually we ended up with what we have today. And the same thing happened in the other direction with the other group for humans, uh, and so we have, you know, the Australopithecus, and we have the, all the different variations of, of uh, Homo species and the Paranthropus that died off, and all these different, um, you know, pre-human species that, you know, after six million years ago were totally separate from the ape lineage that we know. So they are our closest ancestors still living today, um, but that common ancestor was six million years ago. So um, there's been a lot of a lot of uh, differences uh, between now and then, and then. So that also tells me, um, or it also brings me to the conclusion that and this is kind of a, a you know, a, the second principle B, um, is that humans are still subject to evolution. And so lots of times since, since evolution takes such a, a long time, um, 
we don't really see that. And it's hard for people to grasp because it never would happen within someone's lifetime or any living thing's lifetime because it takes generations to do this. And so and what, maybe really, 30 or more roughly, or is there an average, you know, you mentioned that with one example. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think at the, at the minimum, um, it takes 30 and that's because of the work of a Russian scientist, which, um, I'll get to in a minute. Um, but I think a really good example, and I like pointing this out to people, um, of how relevant this is and how we're still subject to evolution is the fact that, I mean, I remember in, in, you know, in medical training, they're always saying that, you know, people of minority, whether it's Pacific Islanders or, um, um, African-American or, um, uh, Native American people, um, are more prevalent or more prone to getting, you know, metabolic diseases like diabetes and heart disease, um, and things like that. And the reason being in my head is that if we look at the, like the non-minority people, like the people of European descent, um, in Europe, they were eating these processed foods and, um, you know, sooner than these people of minority descent. And so back then, like in the middle ages and things, when we didn't have uh, Western medicine to keep people with metabolic disease alive, they died. And so it's almost like um, people of European descent have evolved a little bit to that diet, a little bit more than people of minority descent. And so we see that they, the people of minority descent tend to get these diseases more severely um, and more um, uh, more often than people of European descent. And so Because the lineage spent a shorter time in an environment where it was still mostly ancestral versus what you're saying with the Europeans being longer in the agricultural. Right. Exactly. So, and, 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 and the absence of Western medicine in that time, like in, in, um, like in medieval times and like in, in Europe like that, because without Western medicine, you know, with, with the, the technology they have, we have to keep diabetics alive today, those people would have died off and the genes that created diabetes with those diets died with them. Um, and so there's just less, we're just less prone to those things. We still get them, you know, it's still not a great diet for us. Um, but it, we're just less prone to them. And we see that as far as when we look at the incidence of those diseases among, um, ethnicities, uh, we see that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, it's, it's just really interesting to, to, to see how we are still suspect to evolution. And then the third one is we alluded to is that evolution takes a very, very long time. Um, and so there's this work of a Russian scientist, Dmitry Belyev, who, who started selectively breeding, uh, foxes in the, in Siberia. And he was, he was, sele he was selecting out the ones that, um, had more like docile traits, the ones that were more likely to come up and eat out of his hand or, you know, seemed more comfortable with humans. And he would just let them breed. And he did this generation after generation and foxes have a, you know, much uh, shorter, uh, gestation period than humans. And so, um, after about 30 generations, they started seeing like significant, you know, behavioral and physical characteristic changes. These, these foxes were coming domesticated pretty much. And so that tells us that, um, you know, it, it takes at least 30 generations, uh, to get, you know, these changes. Um, but that was with very select breeding and very controlled breeding, which, which wouldn't happen in nature. So it's likely to take longer than that, much longer than that. Uh, but we know that an absolute minimum, 30 generations, is a long time. Like, I don't even know what my great-grandparents look like, you know? Uh, it's hard for me to remember. And that was only, what, like three, four generations ago? So um, that's a long time. So evolution takes a very long time. And then the, that leads us straight to the fourth principle, which is if if an environment of a uh, any living thing changes too quickly and 
the the living thing doesn't have enough generations to um, successfully adapt or evolve to that new environment, then the health of that living thing will suffer or it could die. Um, and the perfect example of this is the dinosaurs. You know, we pretty much know that some catastrophic event changed the environment so rapidly that the dinosaurs went extinct. They were all killed off, uh, whether it directly killed them or killed their food supply. And then therefore they died, like the environment changed too quickly and they couldn't evolve to that. Um, and so what we're seeing, I believe with, with humans and with the rest of the species on the earth, when we, we get these massive changes that we've seen in the last, especially, you know, 10,000 years or so, uh, we're changing the, the environment and the, and the way of life for, um, ourselves too quickly uh, not quick enough that we're dying off like the dinosaurs, but quick enough that we are seeing problems with health. Uh, and there's no way that we could have adapted to that. And that's why we have this epidemic of chronic disease, one of the reasons. So, Amazing. Um, so let's talk about how you, when, when did you, when you started to discover this and you realized, you know, the food principles behind it and the paradigm and you started to sort of adopt this lifestyle for yourself, um, what what went away? I mean, uh, you mentioned some of the childhood stuff like asthma and things like that. You you still you said the type one was lingering. Um, what else did you notice, and and what were you feeling as you went down that road? Yeah, so um, I think that the the biggest thing um, for me was just the the blood sugar control. So that's what I really started with. I you know as I grew up, I kind of I sort of I don't know. I don't want to say outgrew because they were still present, like these inflammatory things like the allergies and, and the asthma and things like that. They would still come up every once in a while, but I kind of sort of outgrew them to the point where they weren't as huge of an issue as they were when I was a kid. So I was really focused on the blood sugar control um, because, you know, as a, as a kid, I would go into the endocrinologist's office and see these posters, like educational posters, like, you know, diabetics are, you know, two to four more times likely to get heart disease and you know they're they have to protect their eyes and their kidneys will go bad and their your feet will need to be amputated and i was just like oh my gosh um and yeah, so I, I that's that's kind of like a yeah the, that must have been pretty scary yeah it was and it, especially as as a kid you know when i started you know getting old enough to really comprehend what those posters were saying i was like oh i mean i guess it's trying to help people but like it's kind of scared me um and so i i was really focused on controlling blood sugars and so for me um you know, I started to learn that, you know, the processed carbohydrates and just, you know, carbohydrates in general really um, made things harder to control, which makes sense. You know, I have this disease that makes me pretty much intolerant to carbohydrates and I have to take um, insulin and every time I eat carbohydrates um, um, and even protein. Uh, and so, you know, why would I give my or why would I eat a ton of um, things that spiked uh, my insulin so high? You know, it. And I had to take tons of insulin for because then I started learning that, um, you know, in in type two diabetics that, you know, they were insulin, um, uh, they, they lacked insulin sensitivity. And so it was like, how do we fix that? We decreased insulin. I was like, well, I have control of how much insulin I give myself, but I have to not eat carbohydrates to do that, you know? So I, I was kind of in this unique position because I could control how much insulin I gave myself. Um, because my body wasn't making any more. And so I was really focused on that and really tried to iron that out. And, you know, I've, I've been told by many endocrinologists that they just think it's insane that my A1Cs are what they are because um, they work with people all day long who's, who are diabetic, type 1 or type 2, that A1Cs are just crazy. And, and 
it's just crazy to me that they don't understand that we got to restrict to carbohydrates and it makes it so much easier. Um, Did your insulin yeah. management, I'm assuming it must have changed drastically upon finding this out and over the years, like for example, do you use less now or less often or is it the same or, you know, what has changed about your life and in, in taking exogenous insulin? Yeah, definitely. So I, I remember, I don't know exactly how much I remember exactly how much I was taking as a kid. Um, but I want to say it was like 60 to 70 units a day of slow and fast acting insulins. And now I have an insulin pump. I've had one since I was 13. And so, um, I have like a basal rate that gives me about 22, 23 units a day. And then I eat very low carbohydrates. So I really like will bolus for protein, maybe like one or two per meal. So I'm like, you know, less than 25, um, uh, units of insulin per day where I was 60 to 70, um, eating, you know, whatever I want, quote unquote. Um, so the huge drops there and I would love, and I, I think that Ben Bickman, I don't know if you know, he's, uh, at BYU. Um, he, I think he's working on some kind of like, um, we have all these glucose monitors. He wants to, he wants to develop an insulin monitor to see, you know, people's insulin levels throughout the day, because I want to know how much, if, if I'm giving kind of the same amounts that, that other people are, you know, they're eating low carbohydrate. Uh, cause I don't know, um, you know, if, if the amounts that I'm having to give myself are similar because there's issues with, with the way I'm giving it to myself. It's not going directly from my pancreas into the bloodstream. It's trying to get absorbed. So there may be, you know, lack of absorption and it may not all get absorbed, even though I know how much I have to give myself. So I'd be really interested to know what the comparison is. Um, but yeah, definitely huge drops in insulin and then very stable blood sugars as I started making these, these lifestyle changes. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, first of all, it's a lot cheaper, right? To be yeah, as healthy definitely. as you can if you have something like this where you have to purchase medication. The minimum effective dose is just cheaper and obviously better on the system in general. Have you ever attempted or thought about, is it even possible? I mean, I, I believe anything's possible, but have you ever thought about or attempted to wean down so low or get off? Is that even a goal at this point or is it like it is what it is? Where is the status of that for you? Well, I don't know. So I, I mean, from my understanding, the cells that make insulin for me are, are dead. Okay. And, and the only way that I get them back would be some kind of stem cell treatment. Okay. I don't know if that's true. So I, I went to a, a lecture at Virginia Tech, um, about a year ago. And there was a, a guy there speaking about his research in type one diabetes. And he said that he has found in some, like when he induces type one diabetes in lab animals and things that he's found that the, the beta cells are still there and they're still functioning. They're just kind of walled off, um, by, um, various other cells. It's like the body didn't kill them, but it just made them Got unable him in a to, prison. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so that makes me think, well, if I could, if there was some way that I could stop that from happening, um, then maybe they would restore more function, but nobody's really figured that out. Now there is, um, like if, if there's, I don't know if you've heard of paleo medicina in Hungary, they have lots of case studies, um, where they've worked with, um, patients, usually children who are early diagnosed with right. type one. Mm -hmm. And if they intervene quick enough and the cells aren't all dead yet, they can, they can uh, recover them. But I, 
you know, I, that makes that makes sense. That that's very similar to something like Hashimoto's. If it's got, if you catch it early or you catch it at a good time, that it doesn't destroy the whole, you know, gland, or it might not do, again right. do the attacking. And for people listening, we are talking about type one, which is the autoimmune form of diabetes, not type two, the one that you give to yourself, unbeknownst to you, through diet and lifestyle, um, mm-hmm. and some other things. So it's it, this is an autoimmune condition. So you know, I'm I'm. This will probably connect, but I remember a part in your book where you're talking about, you know, all the different ailments and things you were going through back then. And then you kind of related some things to Anora Gitgaudis' quote about, you know, our Paleolithic hunter and gather ancestors, you know, driving like 90% of their calorie intake from meat and fat of like hundreds of species of wild animals, right? Mm-hmm. And you were talking about that fat being like antimicrobial and who would have known if back then, if you could go back, would that have like helped fight some of the things that were going on in the state? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's actually really interesting uh, research um, about this where, you know, people with higher, well, cholesterol acts kind of like a, um, it kind of binds microbes and viruses and, uh, and things like that, pathogens in the bloodstream. And so having higher cholesterol will help you fight infection just because the bacteria isn't able to, to take advantage because it's bound up by the cholesterol. And so there's, there's this group of people that um, uh, some other people have labeled like lean mass hyper-responders. So when you start eating, um, whether it's a ketogenic diet or, or a very like meat-heavy um, and animal fat um, paleo diet and things like that, that their, um, their LDL shoots up. And another observation we see in these people is that they rarely get sick. Um, and so I think that's because of these antimicrobial effects of these fats that um, that we have in our bloodstream. Um, because LDL is not an issue um, as long as other, other parameters of the blood work are okay as well. And so having high amounts can actually be advantageous in that sense. Um, and for many other reasons too, there's plenty of studies that show that high LDL gives people longer life and better quality of life. So what do, um, what's, high DL, what's high LDL for you? Or I mean, it's usually the reference range is what? Below a hundred, above a hundred. Right. Right. Yeah. Above so to me above. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything above. Maybe that's it, why know, I never get are... sick. I got some good LDL. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got I mean, high cholesterol. I'm, I'm in front. Maybe I'm, I really don't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely a, like a, you know, quote unquote lean mass hyper responder. Um, and my LDL is over 200, sometimes 300. But but my but my HDL is where I want it to be, which you know the only time in my life that I was always told by endocrinologists that oh your HDL is low, exercise more, and I was like how can I exercise more? Like I'm playing soccer and lifting weights and doing all these things, and uh, and the only time it ever got to ideal is when I started eating lots of fat, yeah, uh, animal fat, and then triglycerides are very low, which is very important. So that's kind of like the trifecta there. But then also you want to see that that inflammatory markers are low, like high sensitivity C-reactive protein yes. or homocysteine or fibrinogen, things like that. They want those to be low. Okay. I'm so um, glad you mentioned that. I want to interject on the fibrinogen. Yeah. Um, for Sorry for the listeners that have heard me talk about it before, but um, that test saved my life because mm-hmm. I had extremely, I was pre-diabetic and had extremely thick, sticky blood. By the way, I just didn't know it. Okay. Like at all. <laughs> you would not, you would not, you would not. I cried when I found this out. Okay. I was yeah, like, yeah. blowing my eyes out. Um, my HbA1c was like 5.7 and um, my fibrinogen was really high and I had fibrocystic breasts and um, estrogen dominance and all sorts of junk. Long story short, I really could have had a stroke or a heart attack for no reason and had those inflammatory markers such as that and CRP, but fibrinogen is one of them. So long story short, I 
still do take them in a maintenance dose, but I took systemic enzymes Mm -hmm. to, to get rid of that. And it worked. And I just recently got it rechecked everything and everything's beautiful and perfect. HbA1c is down triglycerides 40. I mean, I'm, you know, everything's great. And it's amazing how something sometimes is dumb as a supplement, (laughs) an expensive one, mind you, but something that really, really cleaned out my blood with brush cleaners essentially and fix that yeah. situation. People, fibrinogen is also really one of the, um, Dr. Forsman, the doctor on my book, um, always talks about it as being one of the like four horsemen of the apocalypse of aging. And then it's what you're talking deal. about is the glycation with HbA1c. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm glad we're talking about the lipid panel for a second, even though that's not really what the, the talk is about, but for those out there, you need to go to someone who understands how to calculate the ratios and be looking at these things in the updated manner and not just see a cholesterol over 200 and go, Oh my God, you need Lipitor. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Because, well, and what if we look at the, you know, the, the research today, like there's, there's plenty of studies that, that have followed people throughout their life, or at least the last 10 years of their life that show that people with higher cholesterol have better quality of life. Uh, they live longer than people with lower, quote unquote, lower cholesterol. They have less rates of infection. They have lower cardiovascular disease and stroke risk, lower risk of cancer. And so clearly this molecule is doing something good for us. Well, and for hormones, um, I mean, listen, there's so many stories. Yeah. One of the ones we hear all the time is people who were, let's say, very strict vegetarian or vegan from a young age either did not get their period and start menstruating till way later, like beyond what should ever be possible, like 30s or something, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, versus versus your teens, um, or going through early menopause. Like I've known a lot of people with different diets like that, or not Paleolithic that went through early menopause at like age 40. That's about 10, 12 years too soon. Fat makes up every part of our, you know, our cells are drenched in it, the myelin sheaths, everything with our nerves. I mean, it's so important. So I can see how a body bathed in such fat. And again, going back to even hunter-gatherer ancestors, I mean, we're talking, that's a mostly carnivore, high-fat diet. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's the diet that made us human, I would argue. Like, if you look at what happened around 2.5 million years ago when we start seeing those first species of Homo arise um, from Australopithecus, um, we also see this huge die-off of megafauna. Uh, and humans, everywhere that humans show up in archaeological evidence, we see this die-off of megafauna. So they were clearly eating large mammals. Um, and I would argue that, you know, just like we 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 see that that humans are doing, you know, bad things for the planet now, we were doing it then because we killed off that food supply, which I think eventually forced us to have to farm, um, you know, to find those calories because this, the, there was still mammals around, but it wasn't the megafauna. It wasn't the, the large animals that gave us tons of fat and tons of um, and, uh, protein and things like that. Um, so we were kind of doing ourselves in back then too. You know, or we're going to end up like the Easter Island people and just ruin ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's scary. <laughs> it's really, scary. We're just going to really blow it. Um, hey, enjoy while you can, everybody. <laughs> we're the last generation. Now, um, uh, first of all, so I, I really welcome everyone. You can see how well uh, Dr. Hussey explains everything to check out Health Evolution, why understanding evolution is the key to vibrant health. His book is great. Let's move on a little bit for the remainder of time and talk about the heart, unless you'd like to leave us anything with the unevolution. Uh, I think that... I, I think that 
I, I kind of make the argument in the book that that the same things that cause our 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 health epidemic that we have are the, the things that are also destroying the planet, and and I and I put forth a a solution in the book that I I think um, is simple but could be very powerful, and that is just take care of yourself because when you take care of yourself, you're also making decisions to take care of the planet, and I and I outline how to do that uh, in the book, and so that's kind of my. Uh, my my message. So I would urge people to to do that. Find out how to do that, and then start doing it. Excellent. Well, moving on to the heart, we already touched on some of the false impressions people have. We know about oh, saturated fat causes heart disease. Totally debunked study, right back mm-hmm. thirty years ago when they were scaring everyone into eating low fat. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the conundrum again that we just mentioned briefly about cholesterol. People being falsely put on statins without getting CAD screenings. You know. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's so many things that have been misunderstood. The other thing too, I mean, coming from Mark Sisson, you know, uh, the the man of the hour here at the podcast, really, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it who you know felt like the more hours you clocked on that heart back in the day, the longer you live. And then he and all of his running and triathlete buddies, you know, either have pacemakers or AFib. Or, you know, they they yeah. all they all realized, oh, hold on a minute, guess the heart doesn't like that. Because it doesn't like being overtaxed like that on a regular basis, running 100 miles hour, you know, 100 miles a week. So we have so misunderstood this organ for so many years. We're trying to get it better. I think obviously ancestral health is really where it's at when it comes to this. What are what are some of the key takeaways that we need to look at when when you know other than some of the things we've just talked about where people yeah. misunderstand this? Yeah. So. Th- this this could develop into kind of a long answer, but I, I really like explaining this in in the in the um, I guess the arena of what causes a heart attack because there's some really interesting research by a guy named Giorgio Baraldi where he I mean he spent his life as a pathologist studying and autopsying hearts of people who died of heart attacks, people who didn't die of heart attacks, and he found really interesting things. He found that um, uh, a large majority of of people who died of heart attacks had no blockage or clot there uh, in their heart. Um, and then he found like in people that where there was a blockage, sometimes it wasn't even in the area where the heart attack occurred. So how could it be causing the heart attack? And then there were some times where he found that a blockage did cause it. So it's definitely one mechanism of how it could happen. But um, when I when I stumbled upon that, because I've I've really, you know, dug into heart disease because, you know, supposedly I'm two to four times more likely to get it because of type one diabetes. And so I was really interested in what, you know, what causes these heart attacks that, that aren't, aren't caused by a blockage. And, you know, through everything I've looked at, I've found that in the three main imbalances in the body that drive this, uh, or drive a heart attack that where a blockage is not required, um, is not being fat adapted. So your body kind of losing the ability, um, or forgetting how to burn fat for fuel and being more reliant on carbohydrates, um, processed carbohydrates. Um, and then oxidative stress, which is basically what happens when our body makes too much exhaust and it doesn't have enough resources to get rid of that exhaust. Um, and then the third one is an autonomic nervous system imbalance. And our autonomic nervous system is the system in our body that's that's um, interpreting our environment and telling our body if we're in a safe or threatening environment so we can have the appropriate response to either get away from that threat or you know just chill out and digest and sleep and do things like that. And so the imbalances in those three things, I believe, directly um, can cause a heart attack. And I want to string those together and tell people how that can happen. Um, and then we can go into maybe a little bit of what, how we, what we can do to rebalance those. So 
if we're not burning fat for fuel, the heart is is really special because you know people on ketogenic diets and things like that, they they have to restrict carbohydrates to get into ketosis because most of the body um, wants to burn or doesn't want to, but it it's easier to burn glucose for fuel. So if glucose is present, it will burn that. Um, whereas the heart is different. Can I interject on that once one real quick? Yeah, because that goes to what you're saying is, and I guess this is way sort of Mark explaining when he talks about alcohol, it's like, it will go to burn that first, right? Is what mm-hmm. you're saying? Like, so that's right. its default go-to. If if both are available in there, it'll go to that one maybe. Is So that's the point? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Think. It's not that, I wouldn't say that it prefers it. I just think that, you know, evolutionarily there would have been, you know. No, it's quick that, and dirty and easy. So it'll just right. choose the lazy or like the easier. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, we were storing up fat for the winter and what is, what do carbohydrates do? They, they um, stimulate insulin, which is our fat storing hormone. So it made sense when fruit was around in the summer, we would store fat so that in the winter we had some reserves, right? But then when you have carbohydrates all year round and the quantities that we have them, that that mechanism backfires and then the body can actually lose the ability to use fat for fuel. We have to teach it to do it again, you know? Um, And so, but the heart is a little bit different. So there's studies that show that um, even when glucose is present, that the heart will choose fatty acids instead. Um, And it will always burn some glucose too, but it prefers to predominantly burn fatty acids. And when you put ketones in the mix, um, burning of glucose drops by up to 60%. Uh, so the heart clearly likes to burn fat for fuel and, and we're going to see why that's so important for the heart. So if we've lost the ability to burn fat and the heart is, is struggling to burn fat. Um, and then we also have high oxidative stress, which, you know, free radicals, which can happen from burning too many carbohydrates for fuel. It can also happen from being exposed to toxins or having things like high blood sugars that glycosylate, you know, certain molecules and make free radicals out of them. Um, but those things can um, be taxing on the body and damage the body, but they can also deplete nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is this chemical that's known for dilating the blood vessels, but it's also very important for relaying the, um, the stress or non-stress signal to the heart and to most other cells, but especially to the heart. And so if so if we can get, we, we're supposed to get a balanced signal. Like if we get a stress response signal to our heart, it's always supposed to be kind of uh, kept in check or, or um, um, balanced by a non-stress response, just a lesser one, okay? So we still get that stress response to the heart and we get an increased heartbeat, but there's always a, a balanced um, uh, non-stress signal. But that non-stress signal cannot get to the heart cells without nitric oxide. Um, that's required for it to pass through the cell wall to get into the, the, the cell. Um, and so if we deplete nitric oxide because we have this high amount of oxidative stress, um, then if we get a surge in a stress response, we may not get that balanced um, non-stress response to the heart cells. And that's a problem because if we get a surge of adrenaline, um, and a stress response to the heart cells. That same thing can happen in other muscles in the body. Like when we go for a run, that's kind of a stress response to the muscles in our legs. And so what happens, the muscles start burning glycogen and glucose because it's quicker to, to burn and um, it'll get us away from that threat, so to speak, quote unquote threat quicker. Um, but then when we start burning glucose like that, we get a buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions in the muscle, which is why your muscle burns when you go for a run, right? And so, um, when that happens in the heart, we can, the heart can be forced to burn glucose, which it doesn't want to do. And that can create and create muscle burn in the heart, which we know is angina. 
Um, so I would argue that angina is a breakdown of metabolism, um, of a normal metabolism in the heart. And so when that happens, we get this buildup of lactic acid. Um, and the heart, you know, when we go for a run, we can just stop running if it hurts too much. But the heart does, doesn't stop beating. So it continues to beat. And so we get this buildup of the lactic acid more and more and more, and that creates swelling in a certain area of the heart. Um, and when the swelling happens, it changes the pressure gradient. So usually the pressure gradient is from the arteries going into the, the heart tissue. But when the swelling happens, um, it, it changes the pressure. Now the pressure is going out and the blood can't get to that tissue. And it also interferes, uh, the acidity that it creates from the lactic acid interferes with calcium absorption. And calcium is what muscles use to contract. So if the heart cells can't contract, that's a problem is too. That's a problem too. And so if this happens too, if we get this surge of, of stress response um, and it leads to this cascade of events that happens, eventually we get tissue death because the, the blood supply is um, uh, compromised and the calcium can't get in. And so we get necrosis, we get tissue death, and that's what causes a large majority, uh, I would argue, of heart attacks. And we know that heart attacks are more prevalent on Mondays, which is a stressful day for a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah. We know there was a study in two you studies You think it would be Europe. Sunday where Sunday's like, oh, God, Monday's coming. <laughs> uh, yeah, you think so. Um, but like Monday mornings, I think. And so there's another study out of Europe, I think it was France, um, where they looked at, you know, the the uh, most um, where heart attacks are most prevalent. And it was during Christmas Eve was number one, which is a very stressful holiday or time for a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, um, what they call summer holiday, which is like, you know, our 4th of July, but they call it summer holiday, um, sporting events, like big sporting events. Uh, people, you know, were, I did know someone's uncle who stood up to scream at like 20 years ago, whenever like Pele in South America made like an amazing, yeah. you know, winning shot and his, yeah. his uncle like stood up to be like, yay. And then dropped dead. And they were all like, you know what? That was probably what he wanted. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, and then Mondays showed up again. And so actually there's a guy named, I think John Hunter, um, who was onto this and he, he noticed the, like the emotional connection and the stress connection to heart attacks and, and heart health in general. And he actually got in a very heated debate with a colleague. This is back in like the 1800s and it induced a heart attack in him and it killed him. So very ironically, <laughs> um, it, it did uh, that. It's so, dark comedy right there. Yeah. 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 But it's just, it's, you know, we see this and I, I, I think it's just so interesting that, you know, when, when you get like someone, you know, jumps out from behind a door and scares you, hate people it. say, yeah, I hate <laughs> it. But people say, oh my gosh, you almost gave me a heart attack. Yes. You know? And so do we, do we say that because we think that someone's scaring us, um, caused a clot to form in our artery that, that restricted blood flow to the area? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what we, we think about that. We think that we almost got so scared that our heart seized up. And I think that this explains the metabolic mechanism that can can do that. And I think that it starts from, you know, our hard carbohydrate diets and toxin exposure and then this imbalanced stress response that we have. That's a really fascinating way of looking at it. And it's funny yeah. because my doctor recently saw a friend of mine who had been falsely told by cardiologists that, you know, the old school looking at stuff told them they needed Lipitor and were having heart issues. And my doctor did all the proper tests, they even did a CAD screening. And they're like, you're perfect. This whole story that you've been told for 15 years is just not true. <laughs> like, enjoy, yeah. enjoy your bacon. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it was just kind of like one of those. And it was funny because what he did tell my friend, they goes, you know, the blood markers are all great. What's going to give you heart trouble is the way you're thinking and looking at stuff because this person is very stressed to the gills, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And so it's interesting too, because we can eat a really healthy diet and have great markers, but then there's these other like sneaky factors that can cause sort of like hidden things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe just wrong, wrong place, wrong time for a, a stressful reaction. And that's one too many. I don't know, but yeah. it's worth looking at that part of our ancestral lives too, which is rest and play and chilling the F out. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're just multitasking, Instagramming, and we have to be, right? I get it. But you right. know, a lot of us do. Um, but we have to take the time to chill and do nothing. And I, I really wish people would stop saying things like, keep them busy? You know what? No, I'm not. How about that? How about, <laughs> how about I'm yeah. not? How about we just also need to get back to that part of it, right? I mean, just for our feet, our soul, and in general, also probably the, the calmness and the rhythm of this organ, no? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I first contacted you about this, you were like, yeah, I'm on a bit of a sabbatical. And I was like, hell yeah, good for you. You know, <laughs> that's awesome. Because uh, we, we got to take that time because of the, I think, unnatural demands of modern day life. And our 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 stress response or our, our autonomic nervous system, there's a mismatch between, you know, the way we're living our lives and the way it evolved and the evolution of it is just, is pretty fascinating, but, um, but yeah, we have to do things to, to create balance in that stress response. How can we, okay. So aside from your books and we'll put everything to connect with you in our show notes, but how can we, can we work with you personally? If we are, you know, out of your state or needing help and want your advice and your, your expertise, do you work one-on-one? How can we benefit more from other than reading your books from what you do? Yeah, I, I do uh, online health coaching uh, through my website, which is resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, and people can get on there and they can uh, they can book a, a free 15-minute consult to see if health coaching is right for you. And we'll talk about what you want to accomplish and we'll go from there. Great. Well, thank you so much. And these books are great and your, your knowledge is outstanding and your stories as well. You know, some of the best work comes from people who had to go search and fight to figure out what was wrong with them and how to make themselves better. And, um, really, really, really interesting. What else would you like to leave our audience with before we, uh, before we go, if anything? Um, I, I say, you know, stay informed, do, do your research. There's so much uh, bad press and bad media out there that's that's influencing people, and I think um, I think that it's a shame because it gets such conflicting information. So you know, know how to interpret good from bad information, and and really do your homework on your health because I think it's it's the best investment you can you can make. Thank you so much again, Dr. Stephen Hussey, and we will put all of the links to his books and also website in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a blast. At Primal Kitchen, we understand just how tough it can be to stay on track during the holidays. And that's why we are sponsoring January Keto Month, starting January 6, 2020. You will receive exclusive keto content, daily challenges, special offers, and more straight to your inbox. No purchase necessary to participate. You will get one month of free exclusive email content from Mark Sisson, learning how to optimize fat burning and get the results you've always wanted. With Mark's daily advice, daily challenges, and emails starting January 6th, we are in this to keep you motivated and on track. Go to primalkitchen.com forward slash keto reset to learn more.